It's good to be back. It's good to be back in my spiritual home. Since I last saw you, I have been on 20 different airplanes and had my mind and heart stretched in ways I could not have dreamed about. It was good to be away, but it's good to be back. For 28 years, I have worshipped with you, listening together with you as the chancel choir leads us week after week into God's holy presence. Together, you and I have attended approximately one zillion meetings here in this church as we attempted to be faithful to God's call on our lives and our resources. You and I have hiked together in Colorado and New York and Nicaragua and more as we glimpsed together God's claim upon our very spirits. Here in these hallowed walls, we have studied the Bible together. We have prayed together, celebrated one another's weddings and newborns, holding one another up at gravesides and at bedsides. My life is richer because of you. I thank you for sending me away for three months on sabbatical, and I thank you for welcoming me back with genuous, genuine, generous, and warm grace. The question that people often ask me about sabbatical is this, what was the best part? And I always struggle to answer, because the best part was the worst part. Many of you know that I spent one month volunteering this summer with Mediterranean Hope, an Italian organization of Protestants who are responding to the hundreds of thousands of migrants who are fleeing the Middle East and Africa. They board boats that are built for about 20 people, but they put about 120 on those boats, and they pray, hoping the boat will make it until they reach the shores of Italy. One afternoon when I was working with Mediterranean Hope, my assignment was to help run the internet point that Mediterranean Hope set up there near the shore so that when they arrived safely in Italy, they could send a message back to a family or friend in Africa or in Syria or maybe a message to a friend already in Europe saying, I've arrived, I'm safe. They lined up eagerly this afternoon there was a crowd, and it was blistering hot. It was the kind of heat where they shut, shut down all the shops in, in all of the areas because it's too hot for anyone to be out. But these migrants were lined up in the heat waiting to get to use the computer. So I was sent out with some cold water to keep them comfortable until their turn came. And as I was passing out those little Dixie cups of cold water, I encountered a group of girls about 15 or 16 years old, and I realized they spoke perfect English. Thank you, they said, and began to chat with me as I passed out the water. And I realized that even though these girls were from Eritrea in East Africa, they had along the way learned English. And they were there in Italy alone. 
They had traveled without a mother or a father, a brother or a sister, an aunt or an uncle. They had sojourned for six months across the desert where many die of dehydration, across the sea where they witnessed many drowning. And as I passed out those Dixie cups of water, I kept thinking about my own son, Connor, who's now 20. And in a million years, I could not have imagined sending Connor away from my home when he was only 15 years old to go to another continent. In fact, when he was their age, I was still driving his lunch up to Rockhurst High School when he left it on the counter before going to school. And here these girls were, a thousand miles away, in a land where they didn't speak a word of Italian, and most likely these boys and girls would never see their parents again. And so I had to ask them, why? Why are you here? Why did you leave home? And these little giggling girls, not weighing even a hundred pounds, said to me with such eagerness and joy, I want to learn. I want to go to school. I want to be free. For you see, in their country of Eritrea, the boys and girls at age 18 are conscripted into the army for an indefinite period of time, maybe lasting 20 or 30 years, and as a soldier they are not paid enough to feed themselves. Their government in Eritrea is reported by many different agencies as being more repressive than North Korea. So this was my first worst moment, the horrible realization that these children had to abandon their mothers and their fathers in order to find hope and freedom and real life. I felt like I had been kicked in the gut. And I thought of these particular little girls when I read today's gospel lesson. For in the lesson that Dr. Miles read for us, these crowds are gathering around Jesus to see his miraculous healings and to hear his amazing stories, and they are so eager to know what he's all about and to consider going this way with him, and he cautions them, explaining that if they want to follow him, they must hate mother and father, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Such jarring words. And we know immediately that these words contradict the other words in the Bible that we have heard and memorized, honor your father and your mother. If we take this verse about hating father and mother literally, we immediately cancel out much of what we have read in the Old and New Testament about compassionately nurturing our own families. We know well the story of Jesus who tells about the forgiving, loving, gracious father who runs to greet his wayward son who has squandered his inheritance and welcomes him home. We know well the story about Jesus getting involved in the family of Mary and Martha and weeping with Mary and Martha as their brother Lazarus is ill. We remember that part of the instruction to the early church that Paul founded was to ask them, to admonish them, to take care of their most vulnerable relatives, supporting them financially and nurturing them and caring for them. And so I imagine when I read these words from Luke that he was picturing more something like this gaggle of little girls from Eritrea who deeply loved their parents yet had to detach from them in order to discover a life of hope and promise. 
even here in our country, of wealth and prosperity and boundless opportunity, you and I also know that cycle of leaving our families to go away to medical school or to find a job teaching in another community or to marry the one that we love or to volunteer in a mission field. Many biblical scholars argue that this word hate in the original language doesn't mean the emotional hate that you and I hear, but rather it means a turning away from or a detaching from. Scholars suggest that the real message here might be that we should prioritize our love of Jesus over all other loves. But other scholars insist that we pay attention to the impossible feat that is demanded by this gospel. To hate family? And not only that, to carry the cross? To give up all our possessions? Stanley Hauerwas, an outspoken professor at Duke Divinity School, urges us to stay with the uncomfortable and jarring feeling that we get when we read these words from Luke. After all, says Hauerwas, the text doesn't say you should get your priorities right. It says, if you want to be my disciple, listen to what it's going to take. Hauerwas argues that most of us are not violent as human beings. We've never threatened anyone with bodily harm. We've never actually hurt anyone. And frankly, most of us, if you gave us a weapon and told us to fight, we would quickly become nauseated. The only time we could possibly imagine hurting another one is if we were trying to defend one that we loved. If someone was about to hurt our child, maybe we could do it, pull the trigger. In fact, studies show that during World War II, 40% of the soldiers in combat never fired a weapon. The platoon system was created by the military so that soldiers would be motivated to defend their friends that were in their platoon and that once loyal to those brothers in the platoon, they might be more likely to fire on the enemy. And so we are not violent people. But in our world, we use violence to protect those we love, our children, our families, our nation. But Harawas says, Jesus ushers in a new age, an age when it is possible to love our children without needing to kill other people's children. The call in this passage, you see, is to a radically new kind of love, a cross-shaped love, a love that mirrors the God that you and I glimpsed in the life and the teachings, the death and the resurrection of one we call Jesus. Perhaps this love is not so much a choice as it is a presence that overtakes us and will not let us go. Not something that we consciously decide, but something that the holy God of heaven does through us. So one day I was chopping vegetables in the kitchen in Italy. It was fun to cook in Italy. Standing next to me that day was a 16-year-old boy from Gambia in West Africa. The two of us were preparing lunch 
for the other teenage boys, all unaccompanied minors who had arrived on the shores of Italy barefoot without any possessions except the pants they were wearing. I had been working there at Mediterranean Hope for almost a month now, and frankly, I was saturated with the stories, emotionally overwhelmed, and didn't need to hear any more. So in this day in the kitchen as we chopped carrots together, we were just chatting, and I made some small talk about soccer and family, and then he told me, my brother and I left Africa together. He was 24 and I was 16, but he died. What? I said, he he died? How? On the boat. Did he get sick or did he drown? He drowned. He said, without looking up from chopping his carrots, he said, before we got on the boat, we had one life jacket between the two of us, and he gave me the life jacket. And when the boat sank, he drowned. How long were you in the ocean before you were rescued? 24 hours. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, I said to him. And he kept chopping the carrots. And he said, it's okay. This was the second worst and best moment of sabbatical. For here I glimpsed a cross-shaped love. There are too many days when this cross-shaped love is not the one I seek. I seek the easy way. But Jesus summons me to another way. Jesus asks me for total dedication, but I point to my busy schedule as an excuse. God asks for my whole heart, but I offer some good deeds, holding back half my heart for the other projects on my to-do list. Too often my life as a Christian is the yes-but-Jesus kind of faith. I would like to tutor a child, but I have meetings during the time that they need tutors. I want to give more to the church, but I have a kid in college. I want to pray first thing every morning, but sometimes I'm so tired I just sleep in. I want to speak out loud about the tough issues of our day, but I don't want to offend anyone. What are your yes buts? Or maybe the better question is this. When did you experience a moment in your life when you loved without reservation? Perhaps in such a moment, you glimpsed this realm of God that Jesus talks about. This summer, I became a fan of the Moth Radio Hour produced by NPR. I know many of you have told me that you are listeners of the Moth Radio Hour. How many of you do listen to it? Yes, it's a great podcast that I downloaded and would listen to on long trips. And one of my very favorite episodes came from a lady named Auburn. She was a young woman who in her 20s cut herself off from her family when she got tangled up in drugs. She had a baby, and one day she woke up in the middle of the night, looked at her baby, and realized that her life was in a huge mess. Her husband was, had gone out in the middle of the night to find more drugs as they were both suffering from withdrawals and anxiety. She found this rumpled up piece of paper that her mother had mailed her, and on it was the name of a Christian counselor and the telephone number. And so in her desperation in the middle of the night, she dialed the phone. 
a man answered, clearly fumbling around in the covers, trying to turn on the lamp. And she told him, I'm in trouble. I need help. My husband is hitting me. I'm afraid for my son's safety. I might even be an addict myself. She told him everything. She told him the hard truths that she hadn't even admitted to herself. And this man on the other end of the phone listened with such kindness, such patience, such empathy in his voice that she continued to talk for hours and hours until finally the sun came up and she began to calm down and she began to picture that she could get through this next day and maybe even figure out a way out of this mess. And she paused from her story and she told him, you are an amazing counselor. You're so great. How long have you been a Christian counselor and where did you get your training? And he said, this is the question I was hoping you would not ask. He said, I'm not a counselor. You dialed the wrong number. <laughs> well, she didn't get better overnight, but she attributes that phone call as the turning point in her life, the moment that saved her life. And she reported that 21 years later, her baby son graduated with honors from Princeton. Whoever this nameless man was, he was surely in that moment the face of the living Christ to a brother or a sister in need. You see, the man didn't say, yes, but. He didn't say, oh, I'm asleep. You've dialed the wrong number. I'm not a counselor. By some miracle, he was the healing presence of a loving God. I don't know how God works. I only know that God works mostly through you and me. I know that sometimes God transforms our yes, but love into an ability to love with holy abandon without ever even pausing to count the cost. There are moments in this life when we love someone not because they are our blood relatives, but because the blood of Jesus makes us into one human family. These moments are surely a glimpse of this realm of love that Jesus describes, a glimpse of heaven. I had one of those moments. It was the worst moment and the best. I was interviewing Adam, tall, skinny, timid, shy, so shy he was afraid to interact with the other teenage boys. He spoke only a tribal language and a little Arabic, and they spoke English or French or something else. We tried to tease him and loosen him up. One staff member called him Michael Jordan because he had such a handsome, round face. And Adam, throughout the time we were there, became my sidekick. Each morning when I arrived, he was waiting for me with his notebook. After lunch, when the other boys went off to play, he sat down with me for tutoring. We practiced the alphabet, the days of the week, the colors, the counting to ten, and I pantomimed, and I sang silly songs, and he laughed, and we learned the continents and the countries. And he would come to class early to prep before we began, and he would stay afterwards while the other boys played football. And as the weeks went on, Adam began to soften. Sometimes he talked with the other boys at the lunch table. 
and he even let me teach him to play ping pong. So one night, I sat down with Adam and an interpreter to try to interview him and get his story. Our interpreter was Redman. Redman was a jolly old man that could have been a Santa Claus. He was so beaming with delight, and he was an imam in the neighboring village. But he spoke enough Arabic and English and Italian to be my interpreter this night. When we sat down in the office, Adam's face shifted. His eyes became glassy. His face was somber. And I thought, maybe I shouldn't ask him all these questions that will encourage him to go back over difficult memories. But Redmond said, let's go. So I asked Adam, how old were you when you left home? Eleven, I think. But I don't really know for sure because we don't know what our birthdays are. But my mother said I was 11. I said, Adam, why did you leave your home? He said, when it rained, we ate. When it didn't rain, we didn't eat. I wanted to go to school. I wanted to learn. The 600 families in my village had no school. A French organization came in to build a school, but the village leader said no. I said, did your parents go to school? No, he said, no one. No one in my village has been to school. I want to learn English. I want to communicate. I want to work. I will do any kind of work. And then I looked at my friend Adam and I said, tell me, tell me about your journey. How long did it take? And what happened to you along the way? He said, I left home four years ago. I was treated very badly along the way. In Libya, a dishonest man hired me to work in his factory, and I worked for him for a year, but he never paid me. I was in prison for seven months, and I was tortured. That's where I got this scar on my head. And I was tired, and I had had enough, and I was not a very good interviewer, and I began to cry. And I didn't shed a tear. I sobbed in front of Redmond and Adam. And... The imam looked at me like, you are a crazy lady. Get it together. And I looked at, at him and I said, how do you do this? And we went on with the interview. And Adam said to me, I worked for an honest man for a year. And I earned enough money to send home to my family for them to eat and for me to travel here to Italy. And then Adam asked the translator to say something to me. He said to me, you have two homelands. I regard you as my mother, my sister, an important person in my life. In Adam's voice, in Adam's words, I heard the words and the voice of Jesus inviting all of us to follow the path of love that transcends the boundaries of family and nation. And I couldn't imagine us calling ourselves Christians and answering, yes, but.